This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and this week I'm talking with George Coleman Jr. George has put together a prolific career, having performed with Joey DeFrancesco, Gregory Porter, Russell Malone, and many others. He is the son of sax legend George Coleman Sr. and bassist, organist, composer, and vocalist Gloria Coleman. His drum mentors include Billy Higgins, Max Roach, and Michael Carvin, and he has just released a new album as a leader entitled Resurgence. We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. George designed his new record to reflect all his mentors and influences from his dad's Memphis roots to the Cuban music he grew up around on the Upper West Side of New York to the great Michael Carvin who produced the album. It's really a great listen and George is a great hang, so let's get to it. Here's George Coleman Jr. plan it this way, but you are the third drummer in a row who I've interviewed who is a, a New York-based jazz guy who, oh, comes, who comes from like a hell of a family legacy. Um, a few really? weeks ago, yeah, I interviewed Nasheed Waits a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fantastic drummer. And just recently interviewed uh, Joe Farnsworth. Yep, yep. So I have like a little mini series going here. <laughs> so why don't you just start by uh, talking a little bit about who your dad is and, and the space that he occupies in jazz and the, the legacy that you're a part of. Hey, absolutely. Happy to do it. The funny thing about my dad is sometimes I think of him as like the Zolig of jazz because it seems like every record he's on ends up being like this iconic record. <laughs> You know, even though it wasn't his record. Right, right. <laughs> He's been you on know, a lot, man. I mean, one of the things that people don't know is that my dad started out. Well, first of all, my dad was born and raised in Memphis, mm -hmm. which was a hotbed for music because you basically had the jazz guys. You had the, the Booker T and MG Stacks guys. 
You had the, you know, Chet Atkins, Elvis Presley country guys. And of course you had the pop guys, you know, one of the biggest pop stars. Well, actually probably the first, you know, kind of pop, pop star. Um, you know, not that he was the only famous guy because Frank Sinatra, Ray Charles, Nat King Cole, all those guys were super famous, but the, the, a kind of pop, iconic pop star was probably Elvis. He yeah. probably was the first guy. Yeah. Right. You know, films, TV, all the whole thing, you know, and of course records. So, so, you know, that was a hotbed of music. So you had to play everything, right. you know, country, Western blues, jazz, rhythm and blues, you know. So my first, my dad's first gig, he was at 17 years old, very, very good high school. Um, the teacher there was Matt Garrett, who is the father of Dee Dee Bridgewater, great, uh, famous, uh, jazz singer and who I think just this year got the NEA uh, Jazz Masters Award or maybe mm-hmm. it was last year but anyway um, you know great great fantastic musician and singer so they had a great great hotbed and so his student one of his one of his students was Isaac Hayes who uh, you can even see was will say like you know my teacher was George Coleman Hal Mayburn all these Memphis guys mm-hmm. so my dad was originally a, an alto player as many musicians were in those days because his hero was Charlie Parker um, so he, at around 17, I think his first professional sort of like high profile gig was he wrote an arrangement for Ray Charles for his big band, 17 years old, high school. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then right after he graduated, he could have gone to college on a football scholarship as a tight end, or he could have gone on the road with BB King. And my dad was <laughs> like, I want out of Memphis. So, you know, cause Memphis obviously for an African-American back in those days was a rough place. So yeah. He was like, I want out. And so he took the B.B. King job. So B.B. goes to him. He goes, all right, uh, you have an alto, but you need to buy a tenor because I already have an alto player. I need a, uh, I need a tenor player. And my dad was like, okay, now how he made that change, I have no, I have no idea. Right. You know what I mean? Just like, oh, yeah, well, let's just go get a tenor and I'll be a tenor player. Yeah. And, but that's, that's George Coleman for you. Right. And, of course, he was in that band for about a year. And at that time, B.B. wasn't famous. He was known, but he wasn't famous. And so his first record, um, the first hit record he had was this thing called I Woke Up This Morning. My dad plays an alto solo on it, which, of course, is pretty rare in rhythm and blues, right? Yeah, yeah. Phone solo. The record becomes a giant hit. That's, that's, the first, that's the first George Coleman put my stamp on, on somebody else's music and make them famous, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of gig. Yeah. And in and in fact, BB uh when my dad was in the band, now remember he's 18 years old. He's like these arrangements suck. <laughs> <laughs> I need to re-. so he rewrote uh, all the arrangements. There was another arranger who was actually great, another Memphis guy named Anzi Horn. Look him up, you'll you'll see information about him. And Anzi, you know, uh had some great arrangements, but the other ones were kind of just, you know, whatever. My dad re- rewrote all the arrangements. And then BB would would go into the hotel and see my dad making all these older guys rehearse hmm. and go over the stuff. BB says in his book that his band, the best band he ever had, was the band that George Coleman was in, and he was only eighteen years old. Wow, wow. So that's that's a little bit. And of course, you know, he's mostly really famous for the records he made in 1963, 64, when he was with Miles Davis for exactly almost one year. Right. And, you know, the iconic four and more, my funny Valentine, just, you know, seven steps I mean, to heaven, seven steps to heaven, yep. you know, uh, live in TV and TV, right. Uh, live at the, uh, 
what was it? Uh, Monterey Jazz Festival, I believe yep. it was. Yep. I'm looking at Wikipedia now. That was 63. <laughs> um, so, and yeah, so, I mean, in, in addition to that iconic Miles stuff, you know, I'm looking at, at uh, Herbie Hancock, Ahmad Jamal. He yeah. played with Elvin Jones. He did all kinds of like, like you said, Memphis, Memphis R&B stuff with like Jimmy Smith and Charles Ireland yep. and these organ players. Um, Lee like, Morgan, Slide Hampton. I mean, it's a yeah. long list. Mingus, Jack McDuff. <laughs> yeah yeah amazing yeah. amazing um so this album that you just recorded and released like in in researching it and listening to it, it i think in another article you mentioned this is like a combination of uh memphis soul and cuban rhythm right yeah so you know it's obvious where the memphis soul is come is coming from your your dad is from there that's just you know kind of your blood type um how does the cuban uh aspect come into this well, you know, it, it, what happened was, I mean, first of all, I, I grew up in New York. I, I went to the high school of music and art. I'm, I'm a weird guy in that when I went to music and art, I was not a music student, even though I was playing music. And I went there because I always wanted to prove to my family that I could be great at a number of things, not just music. Right. Because, mm -hmm. you, you know, a lot of people don't know. My mother was also a great musician. She played bass. Um, and then switched to organ. She also sang and composed, wrote for people like uh, Jolie Wilson, uh, Etta Jones, Irene Reed, wow. Ernestine Anderson, um, you know, has compositions, uh, played with Grant Green, Sonny yeah. Spitt, and then switched to organ and then, you know, played with Sonny Spitt again, but this wow. time on organ. Just her a, bass so teacher. A force to be reckoned with in her own right. She was, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Billy Kay. Um, great drummer who was on uh, 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 George Ben, one of George's Benson's records, said your mother, who, who knew and knew my mother, said your mother uh, made a lot of bass players happy when she switched to organ. So, <laughs> so, and, and she had the jam session at Birdland. Wow. So she played with Bird, Train, Sonny Rollins. You know, uh, she actually dated Sonny Rollins before she, you know, met, met and married my dad. Huh. Uh, you know, Hank Mobley, all these people, because they're all like, there's a super fine chick with a badass band that can play bass. So so between my dad and mom, that was my jazz route. So I'm like, okay, I got to try to do something else. So when I went to music and art, I was an art student, you know, studied it, you know, heavily in, uh, in middle school. And, you know, you have to take a test just like to get into the music part. And so I get there. And then I see, I meet Kenny Washington. I meet Omar Hakeem. I meet Marcus Miller. I meet Bobby Broom. I meet Steve Jordan. Wow, yeah. And I'm like saying to myself, man, I should have went to the music department. <laughs> but then, then again, probably I shouldn't have with Kenny Washington and Omar and, and <laughs> yeah. Steve Jordan there. You know what I mean? Right, I mean, right. I was they, those guys were like way, even in high school, those guys were on another level. Yeah. Like already, they were on another level. Right. You know? So, um, so all of that to say, you know, that's kind of where the, the jazz thing and the organ thing comes from my mom as well, because I played a lot of gigs with my mother long before I was able to get to the level uh, uh, to play with my dad. Hmm. Um, so so now the now coming from the Upper West Side was a very mixed neighborhood, African-American, Jewish, white, Latino. So surrounded by Afro-Cuban music from basically the womb and in fact if you didn't know how to dance salsa you couldn't get a date in my neighborhood so <laughs> so so there's that you know and then you know as i grew up i, I grew up across uh, a, a few blocks away from 
Mario Rivera's two sons, Phoenix, uh, who's a great drummer, Phoenix Rivera. If you've never checked him, check him out. He's he's bad dude. He lives in Miami, you know, plays pop, Latin, all that stuff, you know. And so, uh, so I was exposed to that. And at the time, uh, Mario was playing my dad's octet, and he was also playing with Tito Puente and all of those guys. Mm -hmm. So through Mario and Phoenix, I met Tito Puente. I met, you know, the Gonzalez brothers, Jerry and Andy Gonzalez. I met Paquito de Rivera, Ignacio Barrera, and Daniel Ponce before anybody knew who they were. They were just hmm. a couple of guys who just got off a boat in Cuba at that point. There was a place called Soundscape run by this woman named uh, Verna Gillis that was specific to world music, but mostly Afro-Cuban. And so I would go there and they said to me, if you want to learn this music, that's where you got to go. Yeah. And so I got to work with, you know, I got to work with Mario. I got to work with, you know, David Valentin. I got to work with Hilton Ruiz, you know, so I learned that music because, you know, as Hilton said to me, he said, look, man, you know, if you can play this other bag, that's two places where you can get work. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, I love the music too, you know, um, but, but it was also, you know, a practical uh, kind of reasoning behind it. Yeah, and that's a great point about loving the music because uh, my my grad school uh, mentor uh, for for drumming at least um, was a great drummer in Kansas City named Doug Allwater, um, and he he drove home the idea that like you you are you are never going to be truly great at any style that you don't love. Like right. you can become competent in any style, right? You can, you know, teach your, your brain and your body to do anything, but it's, it's the genres and the styles that you really love that really speak to you that are going to be the things that, that end up, um, you know, being what you shine in. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, that's, you can't fake it in music, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's you know, this interesting, like we have this debate all the time on the podcast about, you know, you, like you want to learn as many styles as possible and, and be as diverse as possible, be as, um, employable as possible, but it can go too far in that direction. And I think I'm, I'm, you know, for a long time, I've been coming around to the idea that like you, you don't need to learn everything. You just need no. to like go deep on a few things or maybe even one thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, you, we only got one lifetime as far as we know, unless we're Hindu. So, <laughs> so you know what I mean? It's like, you know, am I going to, you know, play like Daphne's, you know, Daphne's doing that shit? No, yeah. man. <laughs> no, no, man. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, Disney used to always say that the Latin guys knew our music better than we knew their music. Yep. You know, yep. so, so I mean, look, it's like, I love it, so I'm going to do it anyway. You know, right. now right. if I get hired to do some of it, that's great. That's like, you know, icing on the cake. But mm -hmm. the, the last thing for me was like, the thing that made me like say, okay, I'm including this on the record was, you know, a friend of mine, um, another great drummer, teaches at U of T named uh, Richard Livingston Hunt Huntley. He's he's on the record too. He plays bata. Oh, he cool. plays the bata drums. Yeah. And so we had a stu we had studios together in Manhattan, and then when we both moved to New Jersey, we had studios in next to each other in New Jersey. Hmm. And so so one day he knocks on my door. He hears me practicing. He's like, "Hey man, uh, I got a friend over here, and we're we're playing bata drums." And we need a third because, as you know, you need three people. Right. And so I'm like, well, I don't know shit about the bata drum. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I've heard it, you know, but I, I you know, he's like, don't worry about it. <laughs> he's like, don't worry about it. We're going to teach you. 
Yeah. And so, you know, obviously I studied on, you know, you know, the, the, the Konkolo, which was like the timekeeper. Right. Right. And so the rhythms are a little bit uh, simpler, but still getting that good sound is that's not easy. Yeah. So anyway, so I start playing. And then the other guy was uh, Dave Ambrosio, who's actually, of all things, a bass player, but somehow just got the Jones for this and just went deep into it. And so we're doing this thing. And then I'm like, as I'm playing, I'm like, I had like, I don't mean to be weird, but I had like a, a, a spiritual experience. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like I, the music took me somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I was like, and I didn't even know what I was doing. You know, I'm following what they're telling me to do. And they're like switching up the rhythms, you know, and we're going through, we're basically we're going through the auto, auto seco, which is, you know, sort of like the, the, the first thing that you get taught when you, you go through it and, you know, kind of homage to each of the, your uh, orishas uh, and associated rhythms uh, for those orishas. So, so, I mean, you know, as they're switching from one, Orisha to another, they're going into a different rhythm and they're like, okay, well then play that while they're playing, they're telling me like, oh, do this, do that. And it just like, it was like really heavy. And so I started spending more and more time working on that. Not like I had the time. Cause you know, I feel like, you know, drums is just that that's the ocean of, you know, study right there. Yeah. And then they turned me on to different teachers. And then I went to Cuba and I met this guy who was, you know, their teacher name, um, Miguel Bernal and he plays with Pink Martini, fantastic percussionist. And, you know, he, you know, he's heavily into the religion has, you know, has family members in the religions. I went to tambours to, you know, to, to the, to the, you know, um, ceremonies to check Mm -hmm. it out. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and they go all night, all day, you know, and I'm just like, you know, watching these people basically, you know, get sanctified, you know what I mean? It (laughs) was like, it was deep, you know? Yeah. And so, so I said, well, I want to, you know, pay homage to all of my mentors, you know, organ, my mom, you know, the bebop Memphis blues thing, my dad, you know, Bernal, you know, and, and Rich and, and, and Dave, who, you know, kind of introduced me to it. And really, you know, even all the other guys that helped me too, through Africa music, you know, like Hilton and, and Mario Rivera. And all those guys. And so I'm like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do, do a little homage. It's not going to be, you know, a pure version of that. It's going to be my take on it. And I hired a great percussionist, Danny Sedownick. And, um, who me and him, me and him, we've been playing together since, you know, we were practically kids and just have a, a natural connection together. And, and that, that's how it all came together. Yeah. And then my, my main teacher now, you know, Michael Carvin, I mean, he lives in L.A. now, but the guy that kind of got me to this point and talked me through doing this album and how I was going to do it, you know, and produce the album. Um, oh, you so know. Carvin produced it? Yes, Michael wow. Carvin produced okay. it. Cool. So I talked quite a bit uh, with Nasheed about uh, Michael Carvin. He, that's right. He's in, he's in the tree. Right. He's in the tree. Right. And and like I'm I'm a little tiny <clears throat> branch on the tree. I have a little bit of experience with Carvin. I went to grad school in Kansas City under Bobby Watson, and oh yeah, and uh, Bobby would bring Carvin in, you know, a couple times a year to just work with the band and and teach lessons and so forth. So I I got I got a little bit of Carvin <laughs> along yeah. the way. But guys, it's like incredible, you, right? Uh, unbelievable. Just you know, I told Nasheed like they only made one of that guy. <laughs> 
<laughs> that is that is absolutely true. <laughs> you know what I call him? I call him the Tony drum, the Tony Robbins of the drum world, yeah. drum instruction world. Yeah, he's he's not he's he's meaner than Tony. He's not as nice. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, look, he, he's you know his background, Vietnam veteran. You know, growing up in Texas. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you know this. He was like rudimental champion, like six years in a row in Houston, Texas, yeah. in the state of Texas. Did I you know I that? I remember that. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. But you can you imagine what it must have took like for a young, a young African-American kid to like yeah. get that get that award like yeah. multiple years in a row? Yeah. Yeah. That's Michael Carvin, <laughs> you know. And the funny thing is, like when we talk like Michael Carvin, like I, I'm not as close with um, uh, Nasheed. I don't know him that well, but I mean, I, I knew his father. I met his father. And, um, uh, but you know, I know of him through, through Michael, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, he's part of the tree. And, and the thing that you find out when you talk to other guys, Carvin gives everybody what they need to get to where they want to go. It's yep. not, it's no system that everybody gets. It's yep. like, you know, I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. Never talk to me about that. Yep. He's, he's truly a, a coach in that sense. Yeah. Like he's not just a drum teacher. Nope. Sheet talked about, um, you know, sort of uh, his teenage years and his early 20s, you know, working with Carvin. Um, my experience with Carvin was during my college years, like further into my 20s, which was, you know, 15 years ago by this point. You have a, a very fresh, recent experience with Carvin yeah. in, in making this record. So, like, talk a little bit about how he sort of coached you through that whole process. Well, we, we talked about we talked about um, what I wanted to do, who I wanted to use. And, you know, we, we, we bantered back and forth about like what it would be. And he also helped me. I don't know if you know this, but I did a documentary. I produced a documentary on my family called mm -hmm. um, Another Kind of Soul, The Colvin Family Legacy. It's actually on Amazon. It's a feature length documentary um you know got some pretty cool accolades you know yeah so, uh you know like i said i'm a man of many talents so <laughs> um and i'm not saying that the boast i'm just saying you know i have a lot of interest you know yeah, so yeah, yeah and you know my my goal is not to be the greatest drummer in the world or something like that it's just be the greatest creative person i could possibly be mm. and drums is one of those avenues that I'm using to, to, you know, to express that part of, part of me. Right. So all of that to say, you know, he kind of like, just like the, just like the movie was really like an homage to my mom and my dad, you know, as my, you know, first mentors, this record was an homage to, you know, my mom, my dad, Mario and Carvin as my mentors, mm -hmm. you know, and of course the music, 
of Afro, the Afro-Cuban world, of the bebop jazz world, of the blues world. Yeah, yeah. I love and the we even, Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. And we, the other thing was, you know, Harold Mayburn, who was like one of my dad's closest friend and was a mentor of mine too, you know, he had passed, you know, several years ago. And, you know, so we did like one of his tunes and then me and my dad wrote a composition dedicated to him called Mabe. Mm-hmm. So all of that was really what my project was about. And it was funny because people were like, well, you know, he didn't solo that much. It wasn't really that, you know, drum centric. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> that was never my fucking goal. Yeah. You know yeah. What I mean? And people expect like when, when a drummer, um, you know, puts out a record or when a drummer leads a band, you know, a lot of people expect it to be super drummy and just, you know, a platform for the drummer to uh, you know, fly around the drums, but so many projects, um, especially jazz projects, whether it's you or Bill Stewart or Peter Erskine or, you know, any other drummer who's, who's, you know, put out a record, like it's, it's just music. It's not a drum record. It's just the music that they want to make. That's it. I mean, you know, my thing is like, you know, Michael told me a long time ago, he says, he says, you're not playing for drummers. Mm-hmm. Drummers don't hire other drummers. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I mean, you know, the people that hire drummers are the other instrumentalists in the band. You know right, what I mean? Right. And and by the way, you ain't even playing for musicians because they don't buy tickets, they don't buy CDs, they don't go to shows. Yep. You know, or at least not not to pay. Right. So I never ever do anything, you know, that's out there to impress some musician. I don't give a shit if they like it or not. I really don't. Mm-hmm. My thing is do people here, here's the thing my where i'm coming from do i have people who don't even know anything about jazz who actually even let's say hate jazz as they think they know jazz to be and they hear my record or somebody else's record and they go wow that's some really good music or i enjoyed that experience yep. that's where my interest lies now you know maybe the next record I'll have one really nice feature that's just about the drum, you know? Mm. But I mean, that's never my goal. And the other thing that Carvin did that I've never seen a record producer do was he said, he said to me, he said, uh, what time is the the start date? You know, start time for the session. I said, well, it's 12 o'clock, but I'm going to be there at 11 because I want to set up and and get my sound. He's like, no, you're going to be there at 10. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, and if you know Michael, when Michael tells you to do something, you just do it. You don't ask questions. Uh-huh. So I get there and he goes, okay, you're, you're all set up. You know, everything's good. He's like, all right. He goes and he, he takes me into the studio. He's and they get some, some bass, bass, bass drum pedal um, sounds. And so they're like, okay, um, come into the studio. He basically had the engineer, like, I don't even know what he did. I wish I had a camera. <laughs> and he changed this. He had he helped the engineer change the sound of the bass drum. Charles McPherson listened to my record. You know, I played a few gigs with Charles. Great musician, legendary guy, just like George Coleman. Mm-hmm. Serious dude. I he you know he, he called me randomly you know for for some other thing, and then he said, "Well, what are you doing?" I said, "Well, I just you know I just did a record." And it's going to be coming out in X, Y, Z. He's like, send me the record. And I was like, uh, you sure, Charles? <laughs> you know, yeah. I said it to him. You know, but I said it to him. Call me back. He said, hey, man, that record is great. 
And by the way, the drum sound is great. The cymbal sound is great. I'm not a drummer, but from what I hear, it sounds great. Yeah. And he was right. I mean, my, but that's Michael and the engineer. So what did, like, did they, did they tweak the mic placement? Were they working no, on the board with EQ? On the board. Wow. On the board. On the board. Yeah, so Michael on knew just what to do. He knew exactly what to do. I've never <laughs> seen, I've never seen a producer do that before. Yeah. I want to go back to what you were saying about, um, uh, you know, playing for the audience and, and gearing your music towards people who aren't hip to jazz or maybe don't even like jazz. Um, and I, I like, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I've, I feel like accessibility is one of jazz's problems <laughs> and, you know, twas ever thus, it's always been a less accessible art form to many people. But, you know, uh, Bobby Watson said, anybody can play something nobody understands. And making your music more accessible to more people isn't about dumbing it down or right. watering it down. It's about figuring out a way how to express what you want to express so that someone else can understand it. That's hard. That's hard. I mean, that's, but you know, somebody said to me, it's not called show art. It's called show business for a reason. <laughs> and we are in what for, for better or for worse, we are in the entertainment business, my friend. Yes, sir. And, and, and that's what it is. Now that does not mean as you, as you adeptly pointed out, that we need to dumb down or, you know, codify what we do in a way that sounds like cotton candy. That's not what we're talking about. Right. What we're talking about, uh, Tayshawn, sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> he goes to me, he goes, I bought your record. And I was like, no, you didn't. <laughs> He's <laughs> like, yes. He said, I bought your record and all, and all the other tracks that were on your, your band camp site. And he said, and he, in, in a long story short, now I, re, I respect this brother like you would not believe because, you know, if, you know, the word genius gets bantered around a lot, but no, he is one, you uh, know, yes. yeah. piano, trombone, drums, and plays the shit out of the drums. I mean, yeah. great drummer, unicorn. you know, he, he's, he's a unicorn and a PhD in, mu <laughs> in music. I mean, what the hell? Yeah. What the hell, dude? <laughs> and so he goes to me, thank, thank you for taking care of the listener mm, yeah yep that that's if he if he said hey man your drum solo on this that or the other thing was the baddest shit i ever heard that was great no that's that would have been nice but the compliment he gave me is the best compliment from a musician or from a layman i could ever get in my entire life and yep. i was like i was touched by that you know yeah. because you know, we're, we're musicians. He's on, as far as I'm concerned, he's in another level somewhere, you know? Mm -hmm. And Richie Morales said the same thing. Another great drummer guy I grew up listening to. You know, I saw him recently with, with, with Mike Stern and it was so funny. I had been there with, um, uh, somebody else's band. No, maybe it was, no, it was my band. It was my band. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, that's, that's how much I got blown away. And so I'm sitting in the audience and I'm watching them guys. And, and they were just killing. And I didn't mean after they, they finished like two or three tunes and Richie just was just tearing up the drums. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was at 55 bar, which ain't the greatest drums in the world, mm -hmm. but he made them sound like they were brand new Gretsch Brown badge or something. <laughs> and, um, and I said to myself, I was shaking my head after they finished. 
and I said it way too loud because most drum- us drummers are deaf. <laughs> yeah. I gotta, I gotta go home and shed, you know. And everybody just cracked up, you know. And, you know, and, and Mike was like, "No, man, you guys sounded great." I was like, "Yeah, but you know, not like that." Yeah. So, so you know, so that's so. And he said, "Hey, man, I listened to your record, and he said everything is beautiful. The tunes, the the band, the drumming. You know, I mean, you know, that's what you know." uh is important to me, mm-hmm. you know. That's that's what's important. Yeah, to me, it's deliver, you know? delivering a, a good experience for the listener. Yeah, I mean that's first and foremost. It's like what Elvin said. The 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 main and and I feel like because of YouTube and because everybody's trying to like impress everybody else, and you know, and social media is so important in what we do. And you cannot you cannot deny that, mm-hmm. you know. It's like everybody is pyrotechnics, match grip, loud as shit, playing unbelievable shit. You know, some of the shit, even some of these like eight year olds, you're like, well, damn, you know? And I mean, I didn't sound like that when I was 18 years old. You know what I mean? You know, I mean, you know, part of it is because I didn't have what they had. I had to figure that shit out. I had to call like five drummers or musicians and say, you buy that record, you buy that record. You buy that record, and then we'll all get together, and we'll take those records, and then yeah. we'll figure out all that stuff that's in there, yeah, or try yeah. to anyway. You know what I mean? That's how it was. Right. It wasn't. There was no instruction books. There was like there was like ten drum books. You know what I mean? That yeah. everybody used. It's so funny you mentioned loud as shit because, like, now that I think of it, that's that's just one of my biggest beefs with like social media drumming and internet drumming. Like, aside from whatever genre it is, aside from yeah, you know, whatever style of drumming it is, aside from how many notes there are or whatever, I'm, a lot of videos, I'm just like, God, why are you playing so fucking loud? <laughs> so loud. It's, it's one volume. And there's nothing wrong with playing loud. It's only a drag when that's the only, you know, volume. Right. And, and, and there's like no loud, loud. Loud can still have touch and tone. And if you've got yeah, loud true. with no touch and no tone, it's just fucking loud. And I ain't interested. And that's why I'm a big believer in playing traditional grip and match grip, mm-hmm. because what people don't realize is match grip by its very definition, always, you know, unless you're Bill Stewart or somebody makes you play louder. Hmm. You know, it's just natural because, you know, you just, you got the weight of the, you got the weight of your arm and the stick coming straight down. When you're playing traditional, you're going to play more nuance. You just, mm-hmm. you just have to. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The if, idea of if you, you take know, the time to develop that nuance in your technique, I think you've got to do it. You still yeah. got to do it. Right. It's still it's still, you know, it's still something that has to be conscious. But it's it's what I do with all my students. I'm like, they're like, no, I want to play. I'm like, you're going to play mass script. Mm-hmm. You're going to learn. You're going to learn how to play mass script. You're going to learn it. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you can play. You, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, traditional. You're going to have to learn oh, it. Oh, right, right. You have to learn it. You're going to have to learn it because you're going to play, you know, and, and, and Carvin is always brilliant. When he's going through something where you're practicing in his studio, he's saying to you, now, what we're doing right now that you're struggling through because it's new, when you're in the heat of the battle, i.e. on a gig, you do what you do naturally. Mm-hmm. because you don't you, you're not practicing you can't practice on the gig right so and, and so i also tell my students that so practice this traditional grip 
but at the same time, don't let that, you know, interfere with your ability to make a living, you know, right. you know, right. go back to what you're, you're comfortable with so that you can get through the gig and then in the studio and in your rehearsal time and practice time, work on this other thing. Yeah. Yeah. I dig that. I mean, you, I, I remember Carvin, um, saying something like that. I don't remember the, I don't remember the context exactly. I don't think it was about traditional grip, but basically the idea of, you know, you perform how you rehearse and you rehearse how you practice. That's it. So like don't don't bring anything into the rehearsal that has not been fleshed out in practice. Don't That's bring right. anything into the performance that has not been fleshed out and developed in rehearsal. Like it's this exactly. continuum. It's the, kind of this assembly line of ideas mm -hmm. and techniques and and the bandstand is the end. <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, when you're designing a new vacuum cleaner, you don't go and sell like the first prototype. <laughs> you know what I mean? You check right. it out first. You know, is this, gonna, is this thing actually working? Right. Is this, you know, is this, is this picking up the cat poop or not? Is it going to explode? <laughs> yeah, right. How about that one? So, so right. I mean, my, Michael is funny because he, we all talk like he's got these carbonisms. And one of the deepest ones he gave to me was, and it, it goes back to kind of what we're talking about. He said, I, you got to give me a minute here because I don't want to blow it. <laughs> He's like, stop paying attention to what you're playing and pay attention to what you're doing. Huh. And so somebody said, what does that mean? And I was like, I have no fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then it occurred to me like after like i was like oh shit okay and then you know and i of course confirmed it with him but it, basically what he was saying is and the way to describe it in in terms of a practice thing is like when uh, sometimes when we practice and when we play we're in this auto mode and we're just like we're just listening to how we're playing and how it fits with whatever is happening. But we're not really paying attention to what we're doing. And it goes back to this heat of the battle thing. And for instance, what he was saying to me, he said, look, in the studio, when you're playing, when you're playing time, I want the stick to bounce off the cymbal that much. And I don't care what tempo it is. If it's mm -hmm. Cherokee, you know, strike up the band tempo, I don't want to see that stick go up there. And I want you to look at that stick on the symbol. Is that hand relaxed? Is it in a good position? Is it in a good position in to get the right sound of that symbol? Maybe you should check some other areas of that symbol. Now, as we know, symbols usually the weight carries them and brings them to a place. Right. But you still have some area in there where you can go left or right or up and down a little bit. Where is the best place to get the sound out of that symbol? Yeah. That's paying attention to what you're doing and not what you're playing. Right, right. I think the 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 new the new way to put that is uh, uh, being intentional. Yep, yep, yep. And man, yep. no, who is more intentional than Michael Carvin? Nobody. <laughs> There's nothing he does, you know, on the drums or off the drums. Yep. That that doesn't have a, a reason and a focus. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not very often that, that we get into like the, the weeds of gear geekery on the podcast, but you mentioned the whole drum sound, um, and the drums on the record sound fantastic. And in particular, I want to know what that main ride symbol is. 
Because that's you, crazy. You mentioned that's you crazy. mentioned Carvin's approach to the ride in the yeah. studio, and in listening to some of these tracks, I was like, "Wow, what the fuck is that ride simple? <laughs> what is it?" I mean, you know, Charles McPherson said the same thing. He said, "I'm not even a drummer." He's like, "What is that symbol? It sounds fantastic." And here's the weird thing: so I'm not an endorser uh, currently of any symbols. I endorse for for cannabis, uh, and those were cannabis drums, by the mm-hmm. way. Um, uh, I did use a different snare. I used a, sorry, cannabis. I used a, a Ludwig supersonic. Um, um, but as far as the symbols are concerned, they're all the, uh, the, the new Renaissance 22, you know, K Zelgens. Okay. Amazing. <laughs> I would yeah, I actually, so, I actually wouldn't have guessed Zildjian. Um, but that it, that that ride in particular just is is everything. Like, kind of makes the whole record for me. As I said, I, I, I'm not a, a Zelzian endorser, but uh, you know they're very they know who I am. They're very cool, mm-hmm. and so they invited me up to the factory um, to to get some symbols, try out and pick out some symbols. And so uh, and so I heard those, and I was like, yeah, these are perfect, you know. And uh, so I picked out three plus a pair of hi hats. And uh, a 20, a 22, and then kind of an effect symbol sort of sounds like a squish. It's got the holes in it. You know, yeah, I think Fabian yeah. came up with them first. And they came out with a version of that. And I got some hi-hats from them. Um, and so anyway, some uh, kind of K, K, those are K hi-hats. Mm-hmm. And so I had not used those symbols that much. Mm-hmm. So, and I also use Regal Tip 5A uh, uh, plastic tip sticks nylon tips sticks and as you can tell those symbols are kind of more in the high pitch range partially because they're brand new you know they don't have enough dirt on them but i felt like my old k's were a little bit too dark to cut through what i was trying to do and so i took a risk and you know because i wasn't comfortable with them you know yet and and I took a risk. And, you know, when I first listened to the record, I was like, man, I shouldn't have used those symbols. You know what I mean? That was my first feeling because I felt I, I could just feel myself. You know how it is. I could feel myself struggling to 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 get the kind of sound out of them that I wanted to get out of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, and they, they're new. So, you know, those nylon tips just slide across that symbol. You have to really have to be on it in order yeah. to get that to get that that sound. But at the end of the day, you know, these are little technical details and gear stuff that, you know, we talk about. And then I was just like, you know, the overall music thing is cool. It's fine. Yeah. You know, you know, I'm not going to stress about it. It is yeah. what it is. No, they sound anyway. Great. It's done. I can't change it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, they, sound, they sound great. Sound great. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And it blends beautifully with the organ. I love the presence of organ on this record. I mean, I, I yep. love I love organ in general. I'm just a B3 junkie. Me too. Um, but I actually know Brian Charette a little bit. I got to. Oh, play okay, yeah. And what yeah, a that's cat. my boy. What a cat he is, man. Um, when I lived in L.A., we had a mutual friend named uh, Nick Mancini, great vibraphone player. Yeah, I know Nick. Yep. Uh, and so yeah, Nick brought Brian out to L.A. and we did a little bit of playing. And Brian just like. What a, 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 first of all, just a good soul, such a good soul. Beautiful um, cat. And the way, like his approach, um, 
is is not very in your face. Like he just lets music happen in just sort of this beautiful, organic, unforced way. And I hear that on the record. I remember that from playing with him. He, he's a he he's a drummer's best friend. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, because you know, here's the thing. A lot of people say they're organ players, but if you're not playing the bass pedals, as my mother would say, you're not an organ player. <laughs> you're a keyboardist. <laughs> you're a keyboardist. Yep. And Brian plays the whole instrument. Yep. You know, he plays the whole instrument. And uh, and and here's a story for you. Speaking of, I was the one that recommended he come to New York. I played a gig with him when he was like in his 20s. He was still in, I think he was just graduating college. And he was playing, you know, just playing, you know, we were just playing some gig. I don't even know how I got on the gig. It was like in Connecticut where he's from. Mm-hmm. And he was just a little kid. And and I was like, man, yeah, you, you should come to New York, man. You, you got some talent, man. And he's like, okay, sir, maybe, you know, maybe I'll do that. <laughs> I, I made fun of him like that on the bandstand. He's like, he's like, I don't talk like that. Well, you did 30, 20 years ago. You did. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You know? And of course, you know, he's a, he's a gruff, you know, music veteran at this point. Many. Yeah records under his own name, played with some of the greatest people in the world, you know, just a beautiful cat, you know, and, and an amazing musician. And, you know, I played with a lot of organ players. I played with John Patton in New York, in Newark when I was living there. I played mm-hmm. with, you know, Joey DeFranchessa. I recorded with Joey, you yeah, know, yeah. and uh, he was a close family friend of both me and my father, uh, him and his family. So, so I always loved the organ. And I always, you know, my mother, of course, you know, you know, grew that up in me and, and so, yeah, so to me, organ was just like homage to my mom, but it was also logical because me and Mike DeRubo, the alto player, were playing like doing trio gigs all, all over the place. And so so when I was like putting together the band, I was like, okay, homage to mom, getting Brian Charette, can't afford Joey DeFrancesco. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. But uh but yeah, but you know, you know, Joey's on the record, it ends up being Joey's record anyway. Right. <laughs> Even if right. he's the side man. <laughs> and you know, and no, talk, talk about a genius, you know. Yeah, um yeah. and you know, Brian and, and me and uh and uh and Mike Deruba already had a connection and then I had a connection with uh with Danny that spanned, you know, thirty plus years. We had we had a house band, we played every Monday night with Essiot Essiot. Benny Green, me, Danny, sometimes uh, Don Braden on on tenor, sometimes uh, Alexander McCabe on alto. So it's like we already, you know, you know. I mean, you imagine that a band like that playing every Monday night, man. It was it was an experience that you you can't imagine, you know. Yeah, yeah. So so that's how really how everybody in the band I had a a personal connection with. along with the musical connection right and i mean that's you know this this business is about relationships this art form is about relationships um and i i think the you know the the best music and the best musical experience happens when people who know each other and respect each other and care about each other are making music together and that's not to say they have to have known each other for years and years but like you know, you you know when you have a connection with someone, music yeah. musically and personally, and those relationships I think are the ones that are the most rewarding and the most sustainable, um, you know, creatively and professionally over the years. Absolutely.
my dad was like, well, he says, I'll play on the record if you want me to. I said, first of all, dad, I can't afford you, you hmm. know, because my relationship with my father is, is very professional. I, I wanted to, my, my only pet peeve around, because somebody asked me like, well, what is it like being George Coleman Jr.? Well, in some ways it really sucks because, <laughs> you know, you, you can't win, right? You know, if you're on a bandstand with him, you're there because you're only his son. Anybody who knows me and knows him, that that's like total bullshit. Right. You know, you know, cause he's not like, he is the absolute antithesis of that kind of guy. Right. Like even when I was playing good enough to be in his band, he would not hire me until other people who he respected started hiring me. And then mm. I told them I was busy and I couldn't do it. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> and he was not my teacher. My mm. mother, was my music teacher. Mm -hmm. I didn't learn shit from my dad as far as music is concerned. And, you know, he laments that. And it is what it is. Now, I learned other things from him, you know, about the business, about, you know, how to conduct yourself on the bandstand, all those, how to pick tunes, how to create, you know, how to create a set list. Right. You know, it's funny, you know, I, uh, you know, people have come by, you know, a great Russell Malone, great guitar player. And, and been a leader for a long time, came to see me at Smalls one time. And he said, man, you, you pick great tunes. I said, man, I learned from the best. You know, yeah. between my mom and my dad, I, I learned how to curate, you know, a sound. And just you know. the politics of it, because like within, you know, I mean, you know, there's politics within the music business in general, but there's, you know, other politics that are specific to different genres. And yep. like what you just talked about was an extremely, in my opinion, extremely savvy political move on your dad's part to not hire you until other people on his level had said, OK, I'm getting George Jr. I was never, I was never, I was never bitter about it. Yeah. In fact, the reason I went to Michael Carvin and, and this is another Michael Carvinism, as you know, he's a drum teacher, a drum coach, not a drum teacher. Mm -hmm. And when I got there, he said to me, he said, why are you here? What is your goal? Hmm. And I was like, uh, <laughs> I never heard that from a drum teacher before. Right. I was like, to get better? <laughs> you know? And he was like, uh, he's like, that's not a goal. Right. He's like, why are you here? You know, with that voice inflection. Yeah. Uh, and, and then I really tried to get deeper into the thought process of like, why the fuck am I here? You know, <laughs> I mean, I heard this drummer, you know, Rich, Rich Hunley, who plays Bata. We shared a studio. You know, I saw him at one day and then one day I saw him again. I was like, this cat sounds way better. What are you doing? Oh, I'm studying with Michael Carvin. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, give me his number. Yeah. You know, and so then I said to him, I stopped. I really, I really started to think. And I said, um, I want to be good enough to play with my father. Hmm. And he said, okay, that is a goal we can work towards. And wow. that was that. Wow. So it was an early goal of yours to play with your dad. Yeah. I mean, who would want, who wouldn't want to, you know, <laughs> and I watched all this, the progression of drummers 
you know, Carl Allen. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, obviously Idris Muhammad, Billy Higgins, all those guys. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Lewis Hayes, uh, you know, Eddie Moore. Uh, I mean, it was just, uh, and then, you know, those guys either passed away or they moved away. And then it was like, you know, it was Carl Allen. It was, you know, Joe Fosworth. It was Lewis Nash. It was Marvin Smitty Smith. It was, you know, all these great, great drummers you know, who are either contemporaries or maybe just a little bit, you know, um, older than me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and like I said, you know, I came to the music much later than most people because I was doing all kinds of things. You know, yeah, I was you an got engineer. Like a, you got a degree in chemical engineering, right? Yeah, that's fucking crazy. That's, that's wild. Yeah, I never used it. Well, I mean, I, I guess I did it for a couple of months and then I was like, this sucks. Right. And then I was like, I got to do something else. Yeah. You know, I mean, it didn't suck. It just wasn't, you know, it wasn't, wasn't I didn't, you. It wasn't for me. I mean, at the time, my mother, you know, my parents had a very acrimonious uh, divorce. And, you know, my dad was a super present in my life, you know, growing up. And so it was like I, I became the de facto man of the house. Mm -hmm. And so now my mother is, you know, raising kids, a struggling musician, trying to pay a mortgage. And, um, you know, I had to help, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so... I put my music career and creative career on hold to help her. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, and I kind of just like thought through with some people, like what would be a gig where I could make some money immediately and be able to help my family. Mm -hmm. And they were like, yeah, be an engineer. You're good in math and science. So, you know, a lot of musicians are, so go do that. Yeah. And, and, um, and that's how that whole process <laughs> happened. You know, it was, it wasn't that I wanted to not play music, it's just like I had, you know, life got in the way, you yeah, know. Yeah. And uh, my mother was just such a beautiful spirit, and um, and she sacrificed for me and my sister, you know. And so, you know, it just became my gig to 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 step up. Yeah. And yeah. you know, and my dad was like, you know, he had another wife, and you know, he was like, and, and he was like, that's that's your you know responsibility, which was bullshit. But, you know, it, it is what it is, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, me and my dad are cool now. You know, it took a minute, but, you know, we're cool now. And, and the, um, the exact same thing can be said about me and my dad uh, for totally different reasons, but I, I know yeah. exactly what you mean. And, and um, you know, the, the goal of being good enough to play with your dad seems like it, it, it served, it served you not only in terms of your own development, like I'm, I'm going to, you know, commit to this and really get good at this art form, good enough to play with him. And so it served as motivation for you in yep. that regard. But now like later in both your lives, it's, it seems like it's, it's serving, um, the role of like, uh, uh, connecting the two of you and deepening yep. your connection through, through yep. this music and through playing together. Yep. It's totally, it's, is it has like a total different uh, outcome than I expected when Michael asked me that question. Yeah, you know, it's totally different now. I mean, I help my dad. I, I, you know, I'm like the straw bar. You know, I get the <laughs> band together. Oh, new guy in the band. Okay, well, here's the tune list, and you better know this through the keys. You better know that one through the keys. You know, yeah. uh, oh man, what a tune is that? Because George doesn't call tunes. He doesn't call keys. He doesn't call anything. He just starts playing and people will be looking and they're like, what is that? And I'm like, and you know, I, I know, you know, I'm like, I hear two notes. I'm like, okay, that's star eyes or, mm -hmm. or, you know, or that's, you know, 
you know, rhythm, rhythm changes in D flat. Right. You know, I know, you know, oh, he's going to probably modulate on, on the bridge here or take a couple of courses and then modulate. So get ready. (laughs) Wow. You know what I mean? So, so it's, it's like my role is, is, is different now. It's not, you know, and it's like, I'm still happy, you know, cause as you know, Joe, you to talk to Joe, Joe and I are good, good friends. And, you know, it's not a competition when my dad gets to play. I mean, when, when he gets to play with my dad, I'm totally cool with it. I don't need to play with my dad on every gig. I've, right. I've played enough with my dad. If he calls me and he needs me to do a gig, fine. I'm happy to do it. And I'm available. I'm happy to do it, but I don't need that anymore. You know right. what I mean? Right. I've, that part of my life is, is, is changed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and it's not to say that I don't want to play with him or anything like that, but you know, it's still your parent. So yeah, I don't want to play with him all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, now of course, if he if he, said, he turned around and said some shit to me, I would just ignore it. But you know <laughs> that you know, but you know, it's nice to 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 know that I can do it, but I don't have to do it. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And like the two of you have like a, a a mutual respect now and a common purpose. And totally. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. I mean, he listened to the record and say I knew, like he said, he liked it, and I'm like, well, he played on it, so I know he liked it a little bit. <laughs> I know he likes the tunes he played on, but then we were in the car going to a session and he was like, Hey man, put that record on. And then I, just, I was like, okay, he really likes it. Okay. Mm. You know, nice. um, cause we don't have that kind of like, there's no like coddling and we don't have that kind of relationship. And if I, I, if I only have, I'm the nicest guy you ever want to meet. I'm, you know, I'm a people person, but if there's any pet peeve I have, and it's like people uh, believing or suggesting I'm trading on my family name. That shit fucking pisses me off to like yeah. no degree. Yeah. And it was funny because I was with, I was in my house and you know we we did a we did a we had a the, the record release party at Smoke on May 17th just a couple of weeks ago. And um, you know and I posted something and my dad you know again he kind of like. Hey man, I'm coming to the gig. I'm like, okay, I'm bringing my horn. I'm I, okay. Well, you know, let us play a couple tunes and then we'll, we'll call you up and you can play on the tunes that you played on the record day. He's like, great. Mm-hmm. So he got up and he played and I wrote something nice. Cause I felt so good because the people like were hooping and hollering and screaming and you know, but for me, not for George, I mean, they were for George Coleman in, in a way, but they really loved what we did. We really like reached the crowd. And I was like, yeah. that's, my goal, you know, that that's, and there were people in the crowd. I didn't know. So, you know, it wasn't like they were all my fans and, or friends. And so that was really enjoyable. And I was like touched by it. And so I wrote some, some posts on there and some random drummer from Spain, just like, just tore me down. Like, you know, George Coleman has more talent in his pinky than you have in your whole body and blah, blah, blah. Jesus. And, and, you know, and it was funny, like normally that shit wouldn't bother me. But I don't know what it was. My girlfriend was here and she's like, she's like, she's like, calm down. I was like almost, I was so angry. I was almost hyperventilating. Mm. And she was just like, and I was su- surprised that it elicited that response from me, you know? But it's like, I've worked so hard to uh, separate 
<laughs> you're always trying to bridge a gap. I'm doing the opposite. Right, you know what I mean? Right, right. I'm trying to remove myself from from that, you know, George Coleman Jr., George Coleman Sr. kind of shit. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, he fucked me up by naming me George, or my mom did, or whatever. <laughs> did. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, yeah. Chuck McPherson, the uh, great drummer and and vocalist, and son of Charles McPherson, we call him Chucky. And I always said, I said, you know, because he's Charles McPherson Jr. Right. And I said, why did you come up with Chucky? He's like, so I wouldn't have to say Charles, mm, yeah. so that when I go to a gig, people don't know necessarily that I'm related to my dad. Yeah. And I was yeah. like. Damn, I wish I had thought about that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, we all have, you know, some, we all have some sort of um, advantage that might get us in the door, you know, whether it's our family name or a point on our resume or, or somebody else we know or, or whatever there's, you know, there's almost always an advantage you can push to get yourself in the door. But once you're in, like my friend Q Robinson says, I have to sit down and play the fucking drums. Right. (laughs) I still have, I still have to actually do the job, right? Right, right. right. Um, well, you're you're doing it, man. This this record is fantastic, and congratulations on it, and uh, uh, best of luck in the future to you. I really appreciate that, and and thank you for for those kind words of encouragement. You know, you're a great drummer. I, you know, I checked you out, and oh, thank you, man. And I, re- I and it. I really appreciate you uh, saying that. And you know, it's like, you know, it's it's, you know, I never really consider myself like I'm competing with. I, I don't think that way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I've always felt like there's enough gigs and enough opportunities for everybody. There we really just have are. to figure, we just have to figure our way through them, Yep. you know, as individuals, you know yep. what I mean? You know, that's it, you know, yep. and it's, I don't think that way, you know, I mean, that's just me. You know there's, what I mean? There's that's all me. kinds of, there are all kinds of open spaces across the music industry. You just got to find the ones that are U shaped. That's it. That's it. That's a message for all you up-and-coming drummers out there, man. There's a spot for you somewhere. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Great talking with you, man. Be well. Thanks, brother. Hey, have a great one. There you go. George Coleman Jr. That was fun. Thanks to him for that talk. Check out his new record, Resurgence, wherever you get music, and check out Amazon for the documentary film he made about the Coleman family entitled Another Kind of Soul. Next week, Matt Krause will be talking with Mark Poise. Mark is a Nashville drummer who works with Tyler Farr, and he has a new course out called The Big Three, Steps to the Big Stage. Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.